You are listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more content and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. We are continuing to make our way through the book of Ruth, little by little, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Today we're going to be on chapter 3. We're going to take all of chapter 3 this morning. You're going to find that the last half of this book goes much more quickly than the first half does. And we've been with Naomi and Ruth on their journey. So we've seen them from, from Jerusalem or from Bethlehem into Moab and then from Moab back to Bethlehem with this bitter homecoming where Naomi asks people to change her name to Mara because she said, the Lord has, has sent me away. I've gone away full and the Lord has sent me back empty. And now we are in the town of Bethlehem. Last week we were out in the field. We had Ruth gleaning behind Boaz, this Old Testament practice where women foreigners... Uh, those kind of on the, on the fringes, the outcasts, they were able to, uh, because they didn't have a means of making a living, they were able to be provided for by the farmers who would leave some left in the field for them. And today, we come to chapter 3. And the scene for chapter 3 is the threshing floor. So this is around the time of the barley harvest season. And what they would do back in that time is they had this whole kind of a, a community floor. And one of the sources I consulted said it was close to 30 feet. You could talk 30 feet in diameter, maybe even bigger. I measured. So like you're talking from wall to wall here is maybe about the size, somewhere along those lines of the threshing floor. So a big, a big flat area where they would bring their, their grain. They would pound out the husks from the kernels and then they would toss it up into the air, allow the chaff to blow away. And the farmers, there would be room for multiple farmers probably on this one, this one kind of platform area. And that's where our text for this morning comes in. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 3, and we have an encounter between Ruth and Boaz. And I, I had been thinking, if you're familiar with this story, you know what chapter 3 is all about. So if I was thinking, what, what would be a good soundtrack for this morning's for this morning's uh, passage, and I had to go somewhere along the lines of uh, either Phil Collins or Marvin Gaye, something like that. And you will see why very shortly here. Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. And I'll ask you to rise for the reading of God's word. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. 
When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, which, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I was reflecting on this Story And one of the things that came to mind for me as I was envisioning Ruth going out to the, to the threshing floor to, to meet with Boaz, Naomi has this whole plan. Naomi has this, this plot that she's, these, she's hatching, right? And she's, she wants Ruth to, to get all scented up and to, to wash herself and to be, to be clean and then go to Boaz and lift up the, the corner of his garment and to lay at his feet until he tells her what to do. And I was reflecting on kind of my own life, because what Naomi is doing here really is she's, she's, helping, she's helping Ruth to, to prep for her date, right? You gotta, gotta smell good for your date, gotta be clean, you gotta have some, some decent clothes on at least. Back in my dating days, I believe I've shared with this, this with you, but I was terrified of women for a really long time. Like, my wife and I can share complete sentences. We're, you know, we're moving in the right direction now. But back in the day, it was utterly terrifying. I remember I have to psych myself up to go, I would have to psych myself up to make a call to ask a girl on a date. I remember I'd have to have my roommate in the dorm with me in college, like, encouraging me and telling me, Luke, you, you can do this, you can do this. So I'd run around the dorm and kind of, you know, get all the jitters out. Sometimes I'd even go work out before the date and then... 
you know, you come inside and you take a shower and you, you scent up, right? You got you to gotta look good. You got to feel good for the date. And so this is, this is kind of what Naomi is doing for Ruth. She's helping her prep for her date in a way. Now, what's going on here? Well, this is a, this is a, a big, uh, important kind of climactic uh, scene in the story because we learn a lot about Boaz's character and we learn a lot about Ruth's character as we make our way through this story. And what it ends up being is this is essentially a, a marriage proposal. When I proposed to my wife, I did not ask her to put the edge of her garment over me, and then that was somehow, she knew that that was a signal that I, I wanted to marry her. Right, this isn't the way that we do things now, but apparently Boaz understood that that was the case. And so it's this whole strange scene where Ruth actually asks Boaz to marry her. It's kind of a reversal. It's the girl asking the guy and not so much the other way around like we're used to. Now, put yourself in Ruth's shoes. You remember the, the title for this entire sermon series is God's Grace for the Vulnerable, right? And Ruth, in every sense of the term, is a vulnerable person, a vulnerable human being. She's a foreigner. She's a woman. She's a widow. She's in poverty, basically. And now, it's the middle of the night, and she is putting it all on the line. She is risking a great deal to come and to approach Boaz like this. The reality is that he could have reacted any number of ways. You know, he could have potentially had Ruth killed for something like this. So there's a lot at stake here. And the question running through Ruth's mind, I would imagine, as she approaches Boaz is this, will my Redeemer be merciful? Will my Redeemer be merciful? Because remember, Boaz is her guardian Redeemer. Will my Redeemer be merciful? This question is one that we all wrestle with as well. And I want to say it's a lot more important and a lot more primary than most of us give it credit for. Will our Redeemer, a.k.a. God, will God in fact be merciful to me? It's interesting as we've been watching the, some of the Olympic games, some of the examples we have seen of not just what happens when mercy is extended, but what happens when mercy is withheld. Camila Valieva, you've probably heard of her. She's at the center of this big controversy throughout the Olympic Games. She's a 15-year-old ice skater. And she tested positive for doping. They don't know. The, the details are being worked out. They're, they're doing an investigation of whether she was responsible, the coach was responsible. Nobody knows. But at this point, the eyes of the entire world were on her. And so she did the... She did the uh, the short program, and she won the short program. She did really, really well. She was projected to win by like a really wide margin, right? She was supposed to beat everybody out. She did in the, the short program. Then came the free skate. Anybody watch this? Yeah, it was painful. It was really painful to watch because you see this little, this 15-year-old with the eyes of the world fastened upon her, wondering how the stress of 
having this investigation over her is going to affect her performance. Zoomed in, millions and millions of people watching. Is she going to succeed or is she going to fail? And again and again and again throughout her routine, she fell over and over again. And as she finished up her routine, the camera zoomed in on her face. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that this girl knew she had failed. Completely and utterly failed. She was broken. She broke down in tears. She came off of the ice just basically crying. She knew that the expectations of her country were on her and she had failed them. And so she comes to one person who hoped she could count on for love and for mercy. And this is what her coach says to her. Why did you stop fighting? Explain it to me. Why? You let it go after that Axel. She was hoping and expecting and desperately needing mercy. All she got was a condemnation of the law. All she got was a reminder, which she already knew, that she had failed. Will God be merciful? As I'm a parent, it's funny in the early years, it's, it's almost like a different kid every couple of months. So you've got to relearn how to parent, right? Uh, but I'm learning this question, will God show mercy, um, is a very important one. Because when I see my little girl, she has done something wrong. Some of you have... Have, have thought that maybe she's a pastor's kid, she is an angel. Marigold, I love you so much, honey. Uh, angel is not the word I'd use to describe her. She's a sinner, like all of us, right? But when something goes wrong, the question I wrestle with is, okay, do I discipline in this situation or do I extend mercy and show grace, right? This is a question that all of us have as parents. When is the time to discipline? Because they need that. When is the time to not hold their sins against them? When is the time to show mercy? Because if it's only the law and if it's only discipline, there's no room for grace and forgiveness, right? And I can just see it in her eyes as I approach when, when something goes wrong, when she does something she's not supposed to do, and I approach and she's looking up at me, and I can see it in her eyes. And the question is, is my father going to show mercy or not. Again, both of those are needed. Both are necessary. But only one, only one will build her trust with me. Only one has the power, has the capacity to create and sustain love. So what about you when you reflect on this question? Will God be merciful to me? I wonder where you're asking this question in your life. What past failures haunt you? What mistakes? What brokenness? What, what is there that causes you to question the mercy of God? Now, 
I'm going to say something here too. If you are here as a non-believer, if you are here as a non-Christian, this question is one that you ask every day too. You may not know it. Because with you, it may not be a capital G God. You may not attend church regularly. You may not profess belief in Jesus or in God, but the reality is that there is something in your life that you would say, this is number one. This is the thing. This is the utmost importance, the thing of utmost importance in my life. It may be a job. It may be a spouse. It may be a family. It may be a sports team. Whatever it may be, you are always on the lookout for mercy. Will my boss nail me for that mistake in the last report? Is the coach going to hold that over my head? Is my spouse going to keep track of of how I forgot to, to drop the kid off last week? We're really good at that, keeping records. Will the scale, this sounds silly, but seriously, will the scale be forgiving enough or am I going to look at those numbers and those will define me who I am as a person? You see, mercy is something that everyone is looking for. Everyone is desperate for, whether we name it that way or not. We're all looking for mercy. And the thing about mercy, you know, you'll notice that sometimes people get scared when we talk a lot about mercy and forgiveness and grace. And they'll think, well, no, you, you, can't, you can't talk that much about it. You're gonna go, you're gonna go overboard, right? Like forgiveness and, and grace and all that is, is good, but if you keep just forgiving and giving more grace, that's just gonna create more bad behavior. It's gonna excuse bad behavior or something along those lines, right? It's gonna mess up too much forgiveness, too much grace, is going to mess up the world. But my question is this, is that really what's messed up the world? I love what Robert Farrar Capon says about this. He asks the question, what's really made a mess of the world? Grace? Forgiveness? Turning the other cheek? Or is it guilt? Punishment? Vengeance? And retribution? question worth asking. You can see where he lands on this. And I would completely agree. It is a lack of mercy because we live in an utterly merciless world. Even other religions, any other religion in the world is not a religion of mercy. It is not a religion of God coming to us. It is us coming to God in some way, shape, or form. So back to Boaz and Ruth, right? They're at the, the threshing floor and she's, she's putting herself in great jeopardy. But Ruth is not doing this randomly as if she's just casting the dice and hoping against all hope that Boaz is going to be merciful to her. Think back for a second to chapter two. You remember that Ruth was out gleaning in Boaz's field. And you remember the way that he treated her. See, the bare minimum of the law required the farmers to not go out to the edges of their field, essentially. They had to just allow people to glean. But 
Boaz went above and beyond this, right? He provided protection for Ruth in the field. He told her to, to glean not just behind the harvesters, but like even among the sheaves. He shared a meal with her. He said, look, if you need water, my guys will get it for you. This is unheard of. Foreigners are supposed to get the, the water for the Israelites, not the other way around. And he sits down and he, he serves her food from his own hand. So Ruth is banking on the merciful, gracious character of Boaz, demonstrated by his past actions to her. I want to share you share a passage with you from Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. 34, verses 6 through 7. So this is talking about Moses coming down from the mountain. He had the first stone tablets, you remember that? And he found the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. He was angry, threw them down, broke them. Now he, he comes back with this new set of stone tablets. And the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generations. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Now, the part of this passage that sort of throws us is the end where he punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And we can talk about that more. But what it's saying when you compare it to the previous verse, it says God maintains love to how many? Thousands. Thousands. And punishes to the third and fourth generation. Thousand, three, four. See, the point being made here is that God's love and God's mercy and his compassion override his judgment. And even when his judgment comes, it is designed to direct us toward his mercy. And as New Testament Christians, we have a different perspective than Boaz or even Ruth did. Because we have Jesus. And so what that means is we look backwards through the cross at everything. Romans 8.1, what does it say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How much condemnation? No condemnation. Zero condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Now, it's not that for this reason. It is not because God chooses to not punish our sin. Sin has to be punished. 
See, what happens is that all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our mistakes, they get transferred from us and inscribed on Jesus' body himself instead. And God doesn't punish us as we deserve. Instead, he punishes his own one and only son at the cross. And it's here that Jesus bore the full brunt of God's wrath against sin. See, God doesn't just sweep sin under the rug. The penalty has to be borne, but Jesus has done that. Jesus has done that. So to this question, will God be merciful to me? God gives his answer, his unchanging answer at the foot of the cross. And that brings us to our main point. If there's one thing you remember, friend, I ask you to, to write this down or to remember this. In the shadow of our Redeemer's wings, there is never a shortage of mercy. In the shadow of our Redeemer's wings, there is never a shortage of mercy. Let's pray. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.